Well, today is somewhat of a part two from last week. And we started talking about a covenant community. A covenant community. And um, I have been asking myself the question, what is a well-ordered new covenant church community look like? Because we have to know where the Lord, what the Lord is doing inside of us as a church community. We have to see in scriptures what God's goals are. Oftentimes, we come up with our own plans, our own goals, our own standards, our own truths, um, and we, we tend to live out, not thy will, but my will be done. But we want to turn that around and we say, your will be done in us, not our, not our wills be done. So as I ask myself the question, what does a well-ordered new covenant church community look like? I realize that a well-ordered church is a scripturally driven church, a biblically driven church rooted inside the in biblical standards, teachings, and doctrines. That is a well-ordered church. And oftentimes, like the Amish, people choose which era they would like to go live in. We, however, live in this era, equally biblical as we are scripturally driven. We, too, are a church. A well-ordered church is a well-governed church with godly elders, godly deacons, as prescribed in the Bible. A well-ordered church is a discerning church, knowing the difference between what is right and what is almost right in a convoluted culture as we have today. A well-ordered church is, a, is made up of a covenant-based relationships. A well-ordered church is made up of covenant-based relationships between brothers and sisters. A well-ordered church is known by the world as true disciples of Christ because of the love that they have one another. It is a covenant, relationally based church, and the world sees them as disciples of Christ because the way they love one another. Now, you'll go to a bar downtown late on a Saturday night, and you'll see people loving on each other. You'll look, you go to Hollywood and you'll see people loving on each other. You can go almost any corner of the world, and you'll see people loving on each other. But the Bible says, Jesus speaking, he says, and they will know that you are his disciples because of your love for one another. And there is a distinction between the way we love each other and the world out there loves each other. It's not the same thing. And we cannot afford to have their definitions of love, etc., be filtered into our understanding of the same. Because a well-ordered church is what? A scripturally driven church. So it's very important for us to understand that God has called us to relate to one another in a very, very specific way, a biblical way. The way we relate to one another is that there's a tremendous, there's a high level of respect for one another. I remember in 1984, I was in sixth grade, or fifth grade, excuse me. 1984. Wow, that's a long time ago. 
I got to meet the president of South Africa. And I was Afrikaans, I couldn't speak any English, and everybody there was speaking English. But the president, P.W. Borta was his name, he actually was Afrikaans, however, everybody was speaking English, and we were standing in a row. I was in the Drakensberg Boys Choir at the time, and there was this whole entourage with the president, and he came walking down the road, and he was greeting each boy by the hand, looking them in the eye, greeting them. And as he was coming closer and closer toward me to greet me, my hands were sweating. I lit, it was literally dripping from my hands, right? And I was so nervous to meet him, when he came to me, bent over, he shook my hand, I held my hand out, and I almost went speechless. Because here he was, the president of South Africa. And I remember starting, I started speaking in Afrikaans, and I said, hello, uncle. How are you, uncle? Okay, uncle. Thank you, uncle. Okay, bye-bye, uncle. And I just looked away. I think I used the word uncle like 10 times uh, instead of president. But Because in South Africa, it's somewhat of a respectful thing to call somebody uncle, right? And I'm so, I'm so reminded of that moment because when you're so taken with who somebody is, you sometimes go speechless, you sometimes go nervous, but you're always in awe of and totally respectful too, Right? But in the same way, we relate to each other and should relate to one another inside of the body of Christ in the same way. Because the very person sitting next to you, before the foundations of the earth, the Bible says, God wrote their name in the book of life, His book. You sitting next to a person whose name is in the book of life, and He chose them even before anything was created. You sitting next to a person who Jesus came to die for, to shed His blood for. You sitting next to a person whom He justified, and when He rose, He made them righteous. You sitting next to the person who He is currently in heaven interceding for. It's an amazing thing. The person who was given the right to become a child of God. And in the same way, when you stand in front of somebody larger than life <laughs> that you have tremendous amount of respect for and in awe of, in the same way, we need to view the person sitting next to us. That is how we relate to one another in a well-ordered, scripturally-driven church. But oftentimes that doesn't happen, and the reason it doesn't happen is because of our ignorance of who that person really is. Are they perfect? Not by far. Are they holy? Of course they are being sanctified. Jesus didn't come for the holy. He came so that you may be made holy. The person sitting next to you is, in fact, married to Christ, the bride of Christ. So the love that the children of God have for one another is in fact a covenantal love because it is a reflection of the love that God has for them. You know this to be true. When you 
when you have a friend that you really love, guess what? His children is somebody you care for also. There's a covenantal love that the children of God have for one another because of the love that God has for them. The love that they have for one another is a covenantal love. Why? Because it is an extension of the love that God loves them with and that they love God with. You see, the Scriptures are covenantal from beginning to end. A covenant is a solemn bond. It's beyond just a commitment and loyalty. It's a, it's a solemn bond. Everything that is mine is yours. Everything that is yours is mine. A covenant is exactly that. God made a covenant with Noah that he, that he will never flood the earth again. God made a covenant with Abraham that he will be the father of many nations. God made a covenant with you and I that we will be given the right to become children of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, as a covenant people, every part of our lives is built around this concept of covenant. That's what makes us a covenant people. Everything about us is covenantal, even our relationship with God. We may have contracts with our employers. We may have contracts with those who we do business with in this world. However, our church life is different. Our church life is a tight weaving of covenant bonds. In church, we have marital covenants between husbands and wives. And that is to us a covenant because it's done before God. Inside of our church community, we have family covenants between parents and their children. The children and their parents. Our entire, or let me say that our covenant bonds that we have is between brothers and sisters. And our entire belief system, as a matter of fact, springs from the covenant we have with God. And we celebrate that every single time we receive communion. There is no Christianity outside of covenant with God in Christ Jesus. So we are, in fact, a covenant people. A well-ordered church is therefore a house of covenants. It is a covenantal community. And just like marriage, a marriage relationship here on earth reflects Christ's relationship to His church. In the same way, covenant relationships within the body of Christ reflects God's commitment, His loyalty, His faithfulness, and His love that He has for each and every person inside of His body, inside of His church. So marriage reflects Christ in the church. Brothers and sisters' love for one another reflects God's love that He has for individuals inside of the body of Christ. In the, in the book of John, chapter 13, 35, Jesus is the one who says, By this, all people will know that you are my disciples. By this. What is this? He says, if you have love for one another. But it's not the same kind of love that you see the world have for one another. It's a different kind of love. As a matter of fact, I would like to make a case that there is no true love inside of the world for one another. But there's a definite divine kind of love that can be experienced within a covenant community of believers. 
So what does this covenant love look like that exists between these covenantal brothers and sisters inside of the church? What does this look like? Covenantal relationships are known for loving each other, not in a worldly context, but in a scriptural context. Covenantal relationships are people's response to one another because of the love that they have for God. I'm going somewhere, so please follow me, all right? Because of the way they love God, they are able to love each other. The truth is, we cannot love each other aright unless we first love God aright. We cannot love each other the way we should until we start by loving God the way we ought. In Matthew 22, 37 and 39, it says, And he said to them, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. Now he's giving them the two commands upon which every other command hangs. You will love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind. This is the great and first commandment. This is the great and first commandment. Then he says, and the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. The point that I'm making here is that the second commandment comes after the first commandment. As a matter of fact, the second commandment is dependent upon the first commandment. The second commandment flows out of the first commandment. It's chronological. First love God, and your love for God will empower you, enable you, inspire you, will mandate you to love others in exactly the same way that God loves you and you love God as a response. In that love relationship, you can go ahead and love others also and should. You see, if a person does not love God with all of their heart, soul, and mind, they will not be able to truly love their spouse the way they ought to. Neither could they love their children in a biblical context, with a divine love, with an eternal purpose. They couldn't love them that way. They love them in, the way, in, in, in a different way. For instance, um, yeah, of course I'll give you more candy because I want you to choose me. <laughs> yeah. There's a different purpose and mode of love in the world. But when we love God, we are enabled and empowered and inspired and mandated to love others the same way in that kind of love, in the love of the Lord. You've always heard people walk around, love, I love my brother in the love of the Lord, you know. But what does that love mean? That's what we're talking about today. This is why Jesus told Peter, do you love me, Peter? And Peter said, yes, I love you, Lord. He says, well, then go and care for my sheep, feed my sheep, tend to my sheep, love my sheep. Do you love the Lord? Then love his sheep. This is loving the body of Christ is an outflow, a mandate, an enabling, an empowerment from loving God. I'll give you a good example of this. Just to kind of get to the nuts and bolts of it. When the Bible says, love the Lord your God with all of your strength. Now, he says mind, 
He says soul. He says heart. He says strength. Love God that way, with that. Well, when I love God with my strength, I'm not loving Him with the worst part that I have. <laughs> I don't love Him with my weakness at that point. I love Him with my strength. Well, what are you strong with in? What is your strength? Everybody has a strength somehow. Are you putting that towards God's people? That's the question. You see that? You love God with what you are good at, what you are strong in, and you love God as Jesus told Peter to love him by loving his people. As a matter of fact, when Saul was persecuting the church, Jesus comes to him and says, why are you persecuting me? So by persecuting the church, you are persecuting Jesus. Jesus said, if you bring a glass of even cold water to the least of these, my children, you are giving it to me. When you visit those in prison, you are visiting him. In other words, the way you relate to people in the body of Christ is how you relate to him. And if you love them with your strength, you are loving him with your strength. It's an outflowing. I love God with all of my strength. How? By, by making sure those in the body of Christ around me benefit from what I'm good at. What I'm strong in. And so I'm trying to just paint a picture for you so you can see we love people as an outflow of our love that we have for God. And when we struggle to love the body of Christ, it is not because those sitting around me are unlovable. It is because <laughs> it's a sign of my current heart toward the Lord. So we're asking the question, what does this love look like? I just kind of... Gave you some nuts and bolts regarding loving God with your strength. In other words, give Him what, you, what you're strong in. And it becomes an outflow. Your love for Him becomes an outflow to the love that you show towards His body. But let's continue and ask the question, well, how do I love? The Scripture says, love covers a multitude of sins. Love covers many sins. But why does your love cover a multitude of sins of other people? Why does my love cover your sins? And why should it? Because that is exactly how God loved me. He loved me by covering my sin. Now, I'm loving His children by covering their sin. He was merciful toward me, and because of that, I ought to be merciful toward others. I was forgiven by Him, and out of the outflow of my forgiveness that I walk in now, I ought to go and walk in forgiveness with others. But here's, here's the thing. He, he loved me while I was yet His enemy, and we tend to only love those people and forgive them after they repented and after they became lovable. But no, that's not how He loves. He loves while the person is yet His enemy. And we need to learn to love while people are yet not fixed. While people are yet not deserving of being loved. 
while they are not yet deserving of having their sins covered. See that? Out of what He did for me, I ought to now love in the same way. Jesus gives such a great example of this man who owed, let's say, $2 million. He didn't have means to pay it. He goes before the judge. The judge shows him mercy and says to him, okay, all your debts are covered. Well, the same man who just had all of his debts covered, he walks out the courtroom and he finds a person who owes him $2. He grabs the man by the throat. He says, pay me my $2 right now. The man says, I have no means of paying you. He says, well, then give me your, give me your family. They will become slaves of mine and you will go to prison because until you, you pay me what you owe me. Well, the judge finds out what happened. He calls that man back, the man whom he just forgave. He's dead. And he says, I heard you would not forgive somebody else's small debt after you were forgiven your great debt. That is unjust, and therefore, I will reverse my ruling. You will now again owe me the full $2 million. Jesus says, you will be forgiven when you forgive. You too will walk in forgiveness. We have to walk in forgiveness of others 490 times a day. 70 times 7. I don't know if my calculation is right. Thank you. I say to you not 7 times, but 70 times 7. Now don't become legalistic with that. If it's 491 times, keep forgiving. That's what Jesus was saying. <laughs> Hyperbole. 70 times 7. You forgive. Why? Because trust me, God forgives you every day. <laughs> he washes you every day. And He has forgiven you for much more than what you have to forgive others for. And when He came and saved you, you were yet His enemy. But we tend to never want to forgive anybody until they're no longer my enemy. So we treat people very, very differently than what God treated us. But not so in covenantal relationships. Covenantal relationships, we treat people in covenant the way God treated us because of covenant. How many of you have experienced God's discipline for each and every single sin that you've ever committed? Every time you sin, God disciplines you. Have you ever experienced that? Trust me, no, you have not. You're not filled with boils like poor Job. <laughs> that wasn't why he, okay, I got it. Shouldn't have gone there. My point is just, you do not experience God's discipline and discipline and discipline. Every single mistake you make, every single sin you commit that you shouldn't have committed, every single thing you should have done but you did not do. Sins of omission, sins of commission. Every single time you... Step out of line, you get disciplined. That's not true. Why? Because the Bible is very clear that He does not treat you as your sins deserve. Psalm 103, verse 10 and 12. He does not treat us as our sins deserve. That's why. I don't think it's a very healthy thing for us to always demand our rights. <laughs> we want justice. No, you don't. Trust me. You want mercy. 
Now, if you want mercy, be merciful. The world has it backwards. Now, in the same way as God, who does not treat us as our sins deserve, God calls us to reflect that same kind of love that He loves us with by covering the sins of others. Covering the sins of others because mine was covered. So in plain English, do not treat your husband, do not treat your husband, singular, as his sins deserve. Do not treat your wife as her sins deserve. Do not treat your children as their sins deserve. Part of you training them is how to cover sins. Be merciful and kind because God is being merciful and kind toward them. Do not treat your brothers and sisters in the body of Christ as their sins deserve. Why not? Because God didn't treat you as your sins deserve. Instead, He covered your sins with the blood of Christ. Now that you were loved by having your sins covered, love others by covering their sins in love. So the question is, how do I cover somebody's sins with love? That's the question. What does that look like? So today, we just want to articulate those. How do I cover somebody's sins in love a biblical way? And then secondly, how do we confront somebody's sins in love? How do I cover and how do I confront? When do I cover? When do I confront? So when, do, when I attempt to define something, I always look at what it's not. That's always very helpful, right? Like when they started asking the question, what is a woman? My first thing is, she is not a man. <laughs> okay, let's start there. <laughs> she is not man's head. She is the crown on man's head, right? She, it's very, very easy to find out what something is when you first start off with what it's not. And when attempting to do that, we see that to cover sin does not mean that you are condoning sin. That is not what we are doing. But we are responding to a sinner in a redemptive way. We are responding to a sinner in a God way, the way God responds to sinners, at least you, the sinner. This is how He responded to you in a redemptive way. So what does it mean to cover somebody's sin? Number one, you cover somebody else's sin by putting it away where it is not seen. You don't cover something by putting a flashlight on it. You put it where it is not seen. When something is covered, it is out of sight. If your wife sinned, and you now use that dirt you have on her as a means to win every single argument from here on out. Guess what? You haven't covered a sin. If your husband sinned, and you diligently bring it up every single time there's an argument, you have not covered his sin. If your spouse says something disrespectful, and you take that as a cue, your cue, to now be disrespectful yourself. 
You haven't covered that sin. You're imitating it. And if that is you, it is a sign that you do not love God as you should. Because from your love for God comes your love for those that belong to Him. Not only is it a sign of your lack of love for God, but it is also a sign that you do not, you are not clear on how God treated you. Because if you lose sight of how God has treated you in love while you were His enemy, if you lose sight of that, then you don't have the means to show love and cover sins of those you currently see as your enemy. If you cover a sin, it means that sin is out of sight. It cannot be seen in the way that you treat that person. Let me just say that again. If you covered somebody's sin, if I've covered my wife's sin, it means you cannot see that she just sinned against me by the way I'm treating her. I'm always treating her like that never happened. That's why Paul says, Wives, you win your husband not by becoming like him. (laughs) You win him over by that attitude that Christ has called you to. If you cover a sin, it means nothing has changed in how you relate with that person now that this has happened. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, now I can already hear some thoughts. Hang in there. We're talking about covering sin first, and then we're going to talk about confronting sin, all right? So hold your horses. In 1 Corinthians 13, 5, does it not say that it, talking about love, does not dishonor others. Love is not self-seeking. Love is not easily angered. Then it says, love does not keep records of wrongs. It does not keep the record of it. Let's it go. So really what I'm saying to you, in covenant relationships, whether it be in marriage or in parenting, or in brothers and sisters in Christ. We don't keep records of wrong. In plain English, let it go. Let it go. Why? Because God's not keeping records of your wrongs. And that is how you cover somebody in love. Learn to let it go. So the first we see is you cover somebody else's sin by putting it away where it is not seen. Not to you, not to them, and not to everybody else. Not to the kids, not to the parents, not to the parents-in-law, to nobody. You actually walk away from it. That is a reflection. You are at that point glorifying God and honoring God for what He did to you, or He did for you. Number two, You cover somebody else's sin when you cover them with prayer. So when somebody sins, that is your cue to walk away from it. Now, that's not if it's a weightier sin of the law, but a lesser sin of the law. We'll talk about that in a second. You walk away from it, number one, and you immediately pray for that person. What you don't do is you 
you don't arrive at a church prayer meeting and say, hey, folks, we just want to pray for Chris Crum right now because, man, I just, you know, and then, well, no, I'm not gossiping. I'm just bringing up the thing we want to pray for. Sorry for using as an example, Chris. He's the only one that I thought of as being perfect, so I just... You, by yourself, privately go to the Lord and intercede for your brother or your sister that is now sinned against you or sinned. If you aren't, are you really waiting for God to bring redemptive, redemption to that person? Are you really believing and hoping God would bring redemption to that situation? You see, strife... Strife is caused by hatred. Proverbs 10, 12. Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers all offenses. Hatred rejoices in somebody else's weakness and somebody else's iniquity. But love does not rejoice in it. Love covers it. So number two, we see that you cover somebody else's sin when you're in fact praying for them. Number three, you cover somebody else's sin when you cover them with the word. And the reason I'm saying that is because of this. People sin because of three things. Ignorance, weakness, rebellion. If they sin because of ignorance, they need to be enlightened. And how are they going to be enlightened? By getting into the Word. So if you're praying for their redemption from that sin, due to ignorance, you will in fact help them get into the Word so that they might be enlightened, so that they could stop sinning out of ignorance. Well, if they're sinning because of weakness, guess how they're going to be strengthened? Through the Word. So if you're really believing for their redemption from that sin, you're going to you're going to believe God for them to be strengthened in that area. How? By getting them into the Word, the very Word that strengthens them. Well, they're just rebellious. Well, the rebellion is just as ignorance is, uh, needs to be enlightened and weakness needs to be strengthened, rebellion needs to be humbled. How am I humbled? When I truly see everything God has done for me, I'm humbled by it. And again, I need to get into the Word in order to get there. So my point is, when you cover somebody's sin, you put it where it cannot be seen, you immediately start praying for that person, and then you somehow encourage them in the Word. You somehow bring them to the Word, whether it is bring them to church, or, or you meet with them and you get them into the Word, or you encourage them to read the Word, but you treat them in a way that you would always have treated them even if they had never sinned. You have to treat them in such a way that your faith is completely in the fact that Scripture will enlighten the ignorant, will strengthen the weakened, or will humble the pride, the proudful. Proverbs 10, 12 says, Hatred stirs up strife, but love covers a multitude of sins. James 5, 20 let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from, the wandering, from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Not all of them, a multitude of sins. 1 Peter 4 verse 8 says, Above all, keep loving one another earnestly. 
speaking to the church, love each other sincerely, deeply, passionately, earnestly. How? Why? Since love covers a multitude of sins. So what does it look like to cover sins? You put it where it cannot be seen. You pray for that person earnestly. And number three, you get them into the Word. You get them into the Word. We always like to talk about terms like, you know, what kind of love does God love us with? He loves us sacrificially. He loves us sacrificially. Look at the cross and we see that. And then we start talking about these terms and I was telling Tina last night, sometimes these terms just lose their power because we've used them so many times. But what we have to learn is that sacrificial love means every single one of those issues, putting their sin where it cannot be seen, covering their sin in prayer privately, fighting off the temptation to gossip, to criticize, to condemn, fighting that off, but rather pray for them earnestly because you do not rejoice in their sin. You do not glory in their weakness. And thirdly, get them into the Word. That is if you're earnestly loving them as you ought to in covenant relationships. But let me tell you, all three of those are self-giving. I love the term self-giving instead of sacrificial because sacrificial has been worn out, <laughs> that term, but self-giving. It has to be self-giving in, in order to cover somebody else's sin. It's going to cost you. It's going to be difficult. Now let's take the last few minutes and talk about what does it look like to confront somebody over their sin and when do I confront somebody over their sin? You might say, Jacques, why are we just always talking about sin? A well-ordered church is scripturally driven. Jesus came to save us from our sin and the consequences thereof. A well-ordered church is a church that has made war against sin. But we make war against sin by covering their sin with love and then confronting their sin the right way, at the right time. So what does it look like to confront somebody over their sin? People, for most part, just wait for the church to... Um, deal with somebody. But really, in Scriptures, it wasn't the church's initial position. It was brother with brother, covenantal brothers, covenantal sisters that dealt with these things. So what does it look like to confront somebody over their sin? Well, number one, the first thing that happens is that the person who thinks that they need to help somebody regarding that person's sin, that person who feels that they need to go and address somebody else's sin, 
the first thing they need to do is they need to go to the mirror. You cannot go and correct somebody when in fact you're the one needing correction also, right? You cannot expect your kids to act any different from you. It's like if, if you have bad language <laughs> all day long, you can't expect your kids to not have bad language. They're going to do exactly what, you, what they see you do. If you have a bad attitude with their parent, guess what? They're going to have a bad attitude with their parent, which is you. I can already hear the mother saying, well, I fold the laundry every day and I don't ever see my kids acting like me. I wish they did. <laughs> they will pick up your attitude. They will pick up your ways. Matthew 7, 3 through 5 says, Why do you seek the speck that is in your brother's eye, but you do not notice the log that is in your own eye? You see the splinter in your brother's eye, but you don't see the planks sticking out of your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take that speck out of your eye when there is this log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. In other words, while you are in sin, you don't see clearly even how to help the brother that is also in sin. So the first thing we do in order to confront sin in a well-ordered covenant community is we go to the mirror to fix ourselves first. The second thing we do is we ask ourselves this question, is it one of the big ten? Is it one of the big ten? The ten commandments. Is it the weightier matters of the law? Or is it the lesser matters of the law? This is where the Pharisees came in and the Sadducees. They took every law and then they turned it into another thousand little laws. And they were holding everybody to it. On the Sabbath day, if you fell on the ground and you accidentally, you know, fell uh, on the ground and you caused a deeper groove than you should have in the dust, whoa, you just, you just plowed. You just plowed, you sinned. Take too many steps. You worked. So people would take massive steps to get from one place to another so that they don't take too many little steps. So what they did was they'd take, they'd take one of the weightier laws and they turn it into a thousand little lesser laws. And what we do is we treat each other within those thousand lesser laws. So you ask yourself the question, well, maybe this is not something for me to actually have to address. Maybe this is a lesser law, and if it is, not one of the ten big ones, well, maybe I should just walk away. Maybe I should just allow the Lord to deal with it. You see, if somebody starts following after false doctrines, in other words, they start worshiping a false god, 
Well, that's, that's a weightier one, and that needs to be addressed. Absolutely. You will have no other God. Even money, you will have no other God. And if that becomes the issue, that needs to be addressed. If somebody's walking around the church stealing money from people, ripping people off, ripping off old ladies in the church, well, absolutely that needs to be addressed because thou shalt not steal. If somebody abandons his wife, abandons his children, well, absolutely, that needs to be addressed. Somebody murders another, also by means of abortion, absolutely, that needs to be addressed and confronted. It's, it's the weightier matters of the law. These things need to be confronted, especially because it's in the church. But I want to tell you this, that <clears throat> if there's something else, like, brother, you need to drink a little less, you know, it's like, it's like maybe just, you know, if it's a lesser matter of the law, then maybe it would be good to take a step back and just go towards the covering part where you actually start praying for that individual and stop treating them different because of it. If it's somebody, somebody lost their temper or somebody, uh, these things happen all the time, right? Just let it go. I remember driving past a church member and they flipped me off. Like, <laughs> and they go, oh, Pastor Jacques, sorry, I didn't know it was you. <laughs> I'm like, I know I don't drive too well. I'm sorry. That's a, you know, we'll get, we'll get past it. Don't worry about it. Actually, it was my fault, somewhat, not completely. But these things ought to not become anything. Are you guys with me? Otherwise, like, at what point do you cover and how do you cover and when do you confront without compromise? Or how do you cover without compromise and how do you confront without condemning? However... This needs to start with those closest to you and most committed to you. Let me give you an example. What we do is, oftentimes, those people closest to us, those people most loyal to us and most committed to us, oftentimes get the worst of us, especially in marriage. Is this not true? Even in child-rearing, is this not true? Like, you will find somebody who will just absolutely... Um, you know, say something really harsh to their spouse. And then somebody else walks into the room like, oh, hi, how are you? Somebody that far distant from them. It's, are you, follow, you follow what I'm saying? People treat other people much better oftentimes than they treat those who are closest to them and are most loyal to them. Remember somebody wanting to divorce their husband, sitting in the office with the pastor, wanting to divorce their husband because their husband... Um, has a couple of issues. The next thing is, when they walked out of the office, there was another man who had a major drinking problem and it was very visible that he did. And he had lost everything. He'd lost his family. He'd lost his home. He'd lost everything. This same woman who wanted to leave her husband because he had some issues, immediately wanted to know from the pastor, how are we going to help this man? The pastor goes like, 
wait a minute, so now you want to like really live in what we want to call, um, you know, sacrificial love. How are we going to help this man? Support him, take care of him. Like, aren't you trying to get rid of your husband for doing less than this guy's done? But So we sometimes treat others so much better and we treat those who are in our, in our lives. What I'm saying is we need to learn to love the way we were loved. So the first thing we need to do when it comes to confronting is we need to go to the mirror and take that railway tie out of your own eye before you start thinking about helping somebody else with a splinter in their eye. The second is ask yourself, is it one of the big ten? Is it one of the big ones? Is this harmful to the point where you need to go beyond covering to the point of confronting? And then, if it is, if it is, you say, well, this issue needs to be confronted. Well, then you go to the third step, which is following Jesus' step-by-step conflict resolution strategy. <laughs> Jesus' step-by-step conflict resolution, sin-resolving strategy. And that is in Matthew chapter 18, verse 15 through 17. Jesus says, if your brother or sister sins, go and point out their fault. However, just between the two of you, hmm. you might as well stop there. That will almost solve everything. Just between the two of you, if they listen to you, you have won them over. But if they will not listen, in other words, they're unrepentant. They're going to keep on having abortions. They're going to keep on uh, stealing money from old ladies in the church. <laughs> they, they, they're going to keep on lying to everybody. They're going to keep on serving false gods, including money, mammon. They will not listen. They will just keep living in adultery. They are not going to listen. If that is the case, then take one or possibly two others along with you so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Okay, so that means you went to that person one time in private. They, were, they are unrepentant. And then what you do is you're going to find somebody else who is influential in that person's life, somebody else that might have an ear that might, that, that, that might be able to speak to that person in an influential way, or two people, and then you repeat the process. Then it says, verse 17, if they still refuse to listen, tell it to the church. Then take it, tell it to the church. Then take it to the elders. And the elders will go to them. So this is the third time this person has been addressed, right? The first time in private, the second time with two or three people. And the third time, the elders come to them in private and talk to them. And if they refuse to listen even to the elders of the church, treat them as you would a pagan or a tax collector. I like to say the government. Just treat them not as part of yours. So the first is, go to the mirror. The second is, is this a weightier matter of the law? The third is, walk through Jesus' steps that he gave us. And then number five, number four, check your attitude. 
check your attitude. Let's say this person needs to be addressed. You need to go to them and you need to talk to them about this sin. They're either walking away from God. They're starting to serve other gods. Um, they are committing a sin that's of the weightier matter. And you have to go and talk to them. How do you do this? Well, you have to check your attitude. In Galatians 6 verse 1, it says, Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. You should restore that person gently. The whole idea is restoration. That's the idea with covering sin, and that's the idea with confronting sin, is what? Restoration. Let the body heal the body. Brothers and sisters, if someone is caught in a sin, you who live by the Spirit should restore that person gently. Restore them gently. Watch yourselves, or you also may be tempted. In Matthew 7, verse 3 and 5, it says, Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, Let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there's a plank in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take that plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. I want to close with this idea. Jesus gave us that very specific example for a reason. Why didn't he say, hey, first take the splinter out of your own finger before you go and take the splinter out of your brother's finger? Because it's different than having something in your eye that obstructs your vision. And have you ever taken something out of somebody's eye? How do you do it? Very carefully. Very gently. Very cautiously. And that is how we ought to treat God's chosen that sits right next to you today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for helping us that we will walk the line and discern rightly as we go about covering and confronting, as we deal with sin in our own lives and with sin in the church, because we glorify you. Thank you for covering our sins. Thank you for sanctifying us. And so even the church, that when we are able to love each other in this way, we are loving each other the way you are loving us, by covering our sins and sanctifying us from our sins. And Lord, I pray that we will not see anyone love, anyone's love grow cold in these last days. Thank you, Father, that people's love will not grow cold towards you and it will not grow cold towards each other, but we will love each other just as you have loved us. Help us discern how to do this in Jesus' mighty name. Thank you for forgiving us. Thank you for not treating us as our sins deserved. Thank you for not holding our sins against us. Thank you for not keeping a record of wrongs. Thank you for your grace and for your mercy toward us. And now, Lord, help us treat each other in exactly the same way. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Amen. Well, did you get something out of the word this morning?